Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 37. I hope everyone's doing well out there. I hope everyone has electricity today, and, and I'm saying that looking forward into the future. Uh, these episodes always come out on Friday, and I usually do this portion of the podcast, this introduction and the closing, the day before, and then I post it uh, that night. And that way I'm at least getting as close to current as I can when I upload these episodes. But right now as I'm recording, this is actually a Tuesday night, uh, just two and a half days before this episode would be released. And uh, just like much of the country, looking at a winter storm coming up, that, uh, well, the last time we had one, which was just a few days ago, it knocked out the power for us and quite a few other people. And um, based on the forecast that I'm seeing right now, it doesn't look like it would be advisable to wait till Thursday to put this episode together if I'm going to stay consistent by getting an episode out each Friday. Personally, I find technology amazing. It's wonderful the things that you can do with it now that you couldn't do a few years ago, but I still can't put out a podcast episode without electricity. So I'm hoping that I'm listening to this on Friday uh, with all of you, with all the lights on and the heater going just fine. I've uh, been glancing at some news and uh, really nothing to report other than New York is allowing now a 10% occupancy in um, venues up to 10,000 people. As I mentioned a long time ago, uh, that math just doesn't work for having Broadway shows. You, you have to have a certain level of occupancy to be able to pay all of the people involved with each show. But that is a first step and hopefully one that will not go back and it'll keep on going forward. And maybe by the end of this year, I'll be able to talk about live theater returning to New York. Live theater is going on in other places. Sometimes it's outdoor theaters with social distancing, which I just read that the UK is going to start doing more of that until more of the vaccines are distributed. And, uh, of course, we've got some live streaming going on. And um, it's still a hard situation for performing artists, for pit musicians, for actors, for crew members. And um, hopefully this tiny sign of progress in New York is a good sign of things to come. Okay, life in the pit this week is life outside the pit just a little bit. We'll still connect it back to the pit a little bit. Actually, as I mentioned toward the end, Ingrid Keller, my guest today, might be my youngest pit musician, uh, but we'll wait for her story to kind of clarify why I'm saying that. Speaking of the pandemic, it's not just theaters that have struggled as far as performing arts, but also symphony orchestras. And uh, I thought it would be nice to talk to the executive director of a symphony orchestra to find out what things have been going on during the pandemic that have helped keep the organization visible, keep it afloat. And I'm going to be talking to Ingrid Keller today, who is the executive director of the Western Piedmont Symphony Orchestra in Hickory, North Carolina. And um, a lot of her ideas come from having grown up in the theater, 
and she's had quite a few roles on stage in the theater. She's had leads in Les Miserables, Legally Blonde, and Your Good Man Charlie Brown, and also Rent. Ingrid has studied in London. She has lived in Seoul, South Korea. So she's had such a varied experience and brings a very creative mind and some nice theatrical touches to the orchestra for which she's the executive director. And so we're going to talk to her about that now. This is my conversation with Ingrid Keller. Today I'm talking with Ingrid Keller. Uh, Ingrid, thank you for being on my show. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us what it is that you do and where you're located? Yeah, so I am uh, an executive director for the Western Piedmont Symphony. The Western Piedmont Symphony is located in Hickory, North Carolina. Uh, We're a regional professional orchestra like many of the other um, orchestras in North Carolina. And um, yeah, so I'm an executive director, which there aren't many of these jobs in the country. <laughs> right, right. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about a, uh, being an executive director in just a moment. But just uh, one thing that I think is kind of interesting is, uh, so Hickory is about, uh, that's a little over an hour away from Winston-Salem, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I know a lot of musicians who play in the Winston-Salem Symphony and the Greensboro Symphony, they tend to also also play in the Western Piedmont Symphony. And this is probably, uh, I don't don't know, it's probably a characteristic of most orchestras in this country, not named New York, L.A., and Chicago, and Philadelphia, (laughs) a few like that. Um, The orchestras really can't afford, uh, can't pay a living wage, you know, for a full-time orchestral musician. So, because there's a limited number of concerts per year, you kind of have to, if you're a musician, you have to, if that's what you do, you have to go to all these different orchestras. Uh, so I imagine you you get quite a few commuters uh, in your orchestra. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. There is a ton of overlap between uh, Greensboro, Winston-Salem, uh, the Salisbury Symphony, also the Asheville Symphony. We get quite a bit of overlap because of where our proximity to them. And even Johnson City, which is um, a good like two hours away from us. So yeah, there's a ton of overlap. And you're exactly right, um, because most of the musicians um, are gig workers. Right. Um, and certainly during this time, it's been difficult for, for them because none of us are able to perform. So, yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, gigging is a huge part of a symphony orchestra musician's life, for sure. Right. Well, Hickory is geographically kind of in the middle of things. If you exclude the Raleigh-Durham area, it's kind of far from there. But if you exclude that area, it's pretty equidistant from everything else. It's it's about the same distance from Asheville to to the Piedmont Triad, Winston-Salem, Greensboro, but also you're not too far from Charlotte. So, uh, so I imagine a lot of musicians are kind of drawn... To, to the Western Piedmont Symphony Orchestra. So You're right. And we also do get quite a few musicians out of Charlotte as well. Right. So tell us, what does an executive director do for an orchestra? So I, lo- I love this question. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because uh, I have an eight-year-old niece. Her name is Ziva. And she asked me not too long ago, she asked me, are you a boss? <laughs> and I 
thought about that for a minute, you know, because you have to be careful what you say to an eight year old. And I told her, actually, no, I'm a servant Mm -hmm. because I have to help everyone else do their jobs. You Mm -hmm. know, I have to make sure we're all communicating, we're collaborating, we're working together, that the right hand is talking to the left. So while, you know, my title sounds really fancy, I really do relate to that servant leadership style so much in what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, on paper, I'm responsible for things like budget oversight, making all the administrative and financial decisions in the daily operations of the orchestra, um, human financial resources, communications, marketing, overseeing publications, and making sure scheduling and everything's efficient for what we're doing for our concerts, because we do so few concerts and we're on a very tight budget. So we do have to be very efficient in what we do. So I'm the main point of contact between operations and our board of directors, who is of course the governing body for our organization. And I also work really closely with our music director. Um, And of course our jobs is to just make sure in general that we provide those quality music experiences and opportunities for our community and beyond. I will say too, though, fundraising is a huge part of my job Mm -hmm. and just in general managing relationships and solving problems is a big part of my job. Right. Now, the music director, uh, if I'm not out of date, (laughs) it's uh, Matthew Troy, correct? Yes. And he's new to the organization. In fact, he has not even had a real opportunity to do an entire first season. Um, That was a huge part of my job um, was knowing that our music director was going to retire and that I was going to have to oversee this uh, music director search process. Mm -hmm. And it was great. I actually really enjoyed it and loved getting to meet all these different conductors. And um, Matthew Troy was absolutely the best fit for our organization, for sure. So it's been exciting to work with him. Um, I feel so awful that he's not had an entire first season because, you know, obviously with COVID in April, it was partially canceled. But um, we're looking forward to we've got a great season next year. And we've got some great stuff coming up, too, just in the midst of all this. We've had to be very creative. Right. Uh, now, in a normal course of events, um, it, you know, if you're planning a season, would you be talking a lot with Matthew about like sharing ideas of programming and, uh, th- you know, ways to make it interesting for audiences and so forth? Yes. So, and Matt's job really is more focused on the programming. You know, he is the artistic mind behind all of this, but certainly um, I uh, love having those opportunities to talk with him about what our community responds well to, um, what I think would sell tickets well, (laughs) what I think if I know that there might be a donor who's really interested in a particular piece and I know he's weighing the difference between one piece or another, um, you know, I can help make the, help make some of those decisions, um, to make sure that it's going to sway one way financially if there's not an artistic, but certainly, um, the music is always first and the artistic, um, integrity always comes first. Right. Right. Um, well, let's back up a little bit. So um, you're, you're in a job that's surrounded by music. Uh, when did you first get involved with music? I was born into music. <laughs> nice. um, my, my family is all musical. Uh, we've got piano, bassoon, violin, a guitar. So really, it was never a question for me of if I was going to go into music or have any kind of relationship with music in my life. It was more 
to what extent or how much music right. would be involved in my life. So as I mentioned, we've got a bassoonist. My father's a bassoonist and mm-hmm. he actually played in the Western Piedmont Symphony in its early years. Mm. So, and then my mother loves classical music. Right. Um, my sister plays violin and yeah, my brother's a heavy metal guitarist. So that's a little bit different. <laughs> right. Uh, did you play any instruments? I I studied the piano and Mm -hmm. my family also, we play a lot of early music and Mm. medieval renaissance. So um, we also play recorders and we play the full family of recorders. Um, We don't have an eight foot consort. Ours is the four foot. So we go soprano to bass with those. So that's kind of unique. And I don't know too many other people who do that, but it's kind of a neat thing to, to share with them. Right. So what kind what kind of education did you have that kind of prepared you for where you are now? So I actually started in, or my bachelor's degree is not in music at all. It Mm -hmm. was um, in communications with a concentration in broadcast journalism Mm -hmm. and and new media. So, of course, at that time, even social media hadn't really been born yet. So there weren't jobs in that just yet. But, um, yeah, so that was a huge part um, of teaching me how to communicate well. Um, I learned how to write well, how to speak well, Mm -hmm. to make sure that the message that I want delivered to my audience um, is delivered in the manner that they'll understand it. So, um, which is, you know, a lot of people, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's a struggle sometimes. So that, that education certainly helps me um, in what I do now. And then probably the biggest piece that really shaped into me going into the arts was when I uh, got my master's of arts administration and cultural policy from the University of London. That was an incredible experience. Met people from all over the world who um, we had, I think, 60 people in my cohort, and we were from 30 different countries. So you can imagine the impressionable experience that had on me thinking about culture and what it means to me, what it means to my community and what it can mean all over the world to different people. It's really incredible. Um, And in the States, you know, we have the national endowments for the arts, but we don't have like specific cultural policy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas in some countries, Um, It's funded, you know, and you look at countries like Sweden where culture is funded 80% by the government because they invest in it that way. So it's just such a interesting thing to look at that all over the world. And certainly my education at the University of London uh, did that for me, gave me that perspective uh, that I don't think I would have gotten if I had done my education here in the States. Right. You know, back in the uh, early part of the millennium, when you could start to get radio stations online. Um, my, I remember my wife telling me she found uh, it, was, it was classic FM, you know, which is like, I guess, the big station and, you know, for that in England. And, you know, they ha- they'd have these call-in sections and, you know, and people would kind of say a little bit about who they are. And one girl was like f- five or six years old, you know, asking for a classical piece. Uh, and then the next person is like this guy, he's a truck driver or a lorry driver, you know, it's basically... Um, you know, doesn't fit the stereotype that we get in our head of who goes to see classical music in the States. And, you know, just kind of realized from that, that in other countries, classical music is a different, you know, it's a different part of your life, you know, then, and we have to work so hard, you know, here for that to happen, unless like yourself, you're born into it, you know, you're around it. So, 
um, I imagine for artistic and executive directors, that is a big challenge is how to win over new people because I have not personally been to a Western Piedmont concert. I haven't gotten over there for that. I'll get that. you a ticket. Okay. <laughs> Good. As soon as, uh, soon as vaccines, as soon as vaccines come around. Yes. <laughs> but uh, if, if it's anything like all of the other concerts I go, uh, go to, there's a lot of, of white hair in the audiences and not a lot of, uh, you know, and you have a lot of little children, I guess, sometimes that are with their grandparents or parents, but you know, not a lot of people my age and younger, you know, and so I know that for all the people I've met in these organizations, that's the big challenge is, you know, what, what is, what, how do our audiences regenerate themselves, you know, over the years? So let's kind of dovetail into that. You've, you've had some interesting events. Um, in fact, uh, you know, our mutual friend, um, Grace, you know, she, she told me that she was very impressed with some immersive theater events that you have, have done, uh, specifically, uh, I think it was Downton Abbey and the Legacy Gala. Um, so tell us all about that. What, what were these events? Uh, what were they like? And how, how did you put them together? So the first one of these we did was um, in 2017. So that was my second season with the Western Piedmont Symphony. And I actually have to go back a little further to tell you where this seed of an idea germinated from. Um, When I lived in London, so again, it was a very um, shaping experience for me. I went to a production from a company called Punch Drunk. Hmm. and saw a production called The Drowned Man, or The Drowning Man. I think it was The Drowning Man. And it was my first immersive theater production. I think a lot of people in the States may have heard of Sleep No More, and that is actually from the Punch Drunk Company. They brought that show to the States, to New York, Hmm. and I think it went one other place as well. And um, I was just totally just in awe of what this was. They took a space and created this entire show um, about an old Hollywood set with a storyline that was so complex that you, because you couldn't be in all places at once, certainly, Mm -hmm. but the show was every like happening in so many different places, Mm -hmm. but you could wander all over and create your own experience. And even to some extent be involved with the actors, the audience wore these masks to distinguish them from the actors. They were kind Mm -hmm. of creepy looking masks actually. Um, But I thought it was just so interesting. And I loved how, um, it felt like an experience that I hadn't had before. And that's the key word is experience. So when I first um, went to my first rehearsal with the Western Piedmont Orchestra, uh, we hold those in like a rehearsal room as opposed to being in the hall usually for just that first rehearsal, just to get through the music and make sure, um, you know, the the director can get certain points out. So um, in that room, it's much smaller, obviously, than what our hall is. And I sat in the room and, you know, for the first time, I sort of felt that same immersive experience. Mm -hmm. I felt, you know, the music completely around me. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is what it's like to play in an orchestra. Because I had never, even though I had, you know, grown up with my father being a bassoonist and going to concerts and being in the audience, I had never felt quite that way because I I just felt the music engulf me. And it was just Mm -hmm. incredible. And I thought... I want other people 
to be able to understand what this is like, because I think it will help people, especially people who maybe didn't grow up with classical music or didn't grow up with a lot of music in their life, didn't play in an orchestra or a band. I thought it would help them understand as well what this is like, what mm -hmm. it feels like to be a part of this. Um, so that's where the immersive right. idea came from. I thought, okay, how can we make this happen? And I worked with our conductor. I was like, okay, where can we put seats? You know, obviously we don't want to space them out too much because I know they have to be able to hear each other and things like that. So we worked together to create like a way that audience could be a part of um, the orchestra, just sit within the orchestra. Right. And it was a huge hit, you know, and it was the, you know, the, they just love being able to see the music and hear, mm -hmm. you know, all of the things um, happening around them that maybe they wouldn't normally see or hear, like, you know, the trumpets dumping their spit. Right. Like yep. <laughs> so they just thought it was such a, you know, neat thing. And in fact, um, I was able to secure a particular donor who she said, now I get it. Now I understand because her husband just grew up with music, jazz in particular, and he just loved it. And he could never get her to understand why he liked going to concerts. And she said, now I get it because we put her right in the middle. And she just said, oh, my gosh. OK, so, you know, so things like that, I think um, now people are wanting to get rid of stuff. They're shedding stuff and they mm -hmm. want those experiences. So creating that um, for an orchestra world, I thought. Um, would just be a great way to connect people to the music better. Right. And it I, it was successful. And in fact, you know, we'd like to look at other ways to do that, even with students who might be, um, you're trying to, you know, get them to understand what it's like to be in an orchestra, um, but they're not quite at that level yet to where they can play. So we're looking at ways that we could even do that at an education level, um, besides just adult education. I do see that um, right. as almost an adult education element. So, yeah, so that's kind of, that's how that developed. And with the Legacy Gala, we were, it was the first time we had done it. And so when I got people, it was very difficult um, to get people to understand what was going to happen at this right. concert. You know, they just really didn't quite grasp. They, they said, what, what do you mean I'm coming to a gala, but I don't have a table? And like, right. so they didn't understand, why do I have three seats? Um, mm -hmm. Why am I, you know, moving around all night? And then, of course, once they got there, they understood and really appreciated that they got to move around. And um, the Downton event um, was um, really inspired by Maestro Troy. We were thinking about a way, like a particular subject. We knew the movie was going to be coming out. So mm -hmm. it was just a really good um, timing element there um, that we were able to do that. And we partnered with uh, the Sharp House. Mm -hmm. out of Statesville, Historic Sharp House. And he's got just a ton of, he'd already done a, a Downton fundraiser similarly. And he's got um, a ton of um, just thrones and mm -hmm. silver and just the stuff, I guess, as well as a lovely slew of valets and footmen right. <laughs> that he has trained to serve properly. So yeah, it was just, um, and the music core, of course, you know, there's such great English marches and, right. you know, um, even the Downton theme itself was played. So yeah, so that was a lot of fun. Um, that's, that's what an immersive concert experience is. And I thought it was so interesting because after we, um, had already done 
two of these I saw in the symphony uh, or we're planning, I guess our second one, we were in the midst of planning. I saw in the symphony magazine last summer, which is the magazine publication that the league of American orchestra puts out. Mm -hmm. They were publishing about, Oh, there are these immersive concert experiences that orchestras are trying. And so I thought, well, we were, we did that years ago now at this point. Right. So it was really cool that we were sort of ahead of the curve on that. Right. Now the Downton, if I remember correctly, uh, that concert, the musicians, got to dress in period attire right yeah yeah i thought i saw had some a lot of, of fun with yeah. that too <laughs> yeah. and we encouraged for the first gala too we encouraged them of course to not the women we said don't wear your black if you don't want to wear a nice gown you know get dressed up with us and yeah and i think um well everyone except for i guess the winds and brass get to enjoy also eating and drinking too so right <laughs> they get to as well they just have to you know take care of things before they go play right again. nice <laughs> Um, so now I know in addition to like the immersive theater that you said was the inspiration for, for these particular events, you've also had some personal theater experience. So, uh, so tell us about that. What, how, what kind of experience have you had in theater? So I grew up in community theater Mm -hmm. and, uh, my very first, production I ever saw I was either three or four years old mm-hmm. and I I, I I remember it like I remember being in the audience it was a production of Annie and my mother says of course I don't really remember you know what I did during the show but I do remember being there and I remember watching it and uh, but she said I just was just captivated the entire show so I <laughs> You know, I I think the bug bit me pretty early on with theater. I've always had a love for it. Uh, Whenever we would go to the library to check out VHS or records, um, Mm. I would always try to, I would always pick a musical, like a new musical, Um, Sound of Music. I loved the Rodgers and Hammerstein shows and loved the the movies of those. So I always gravitated towards those, um, towards musicals. And uh, so by the time I got to be a, a slightly older a child, I started auditioning as an actor mm-hmm. and I had a great experience. I met incredible people, including our mutual friend, Grace and I, not only did we take music lessons from the same institution, but we also uh, got to know each other through theater as well. Was this Newton, and, by the way? Uh, Newton and Hickory. Yeah. Okay. Both of the, there are two theaters in Catawba County, two community theaters. So right. both of those, I had great experiences with, uh, the Newton one, I think is the one that, yeah, Grace and I did more shows together at. Right. So yeah. And I, um, continued on through high school. I started to even get a little more involved in the backstage. I learned a little bit about what it's like to be on the production side, um, continued on through my twenties. I did a few other, you know, kind of dream roles at that point. Eponine. Eponine. Okay. Eponine was a big one. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I had loved that musical Les Mis since I was, you know, eight, eight years old. Maybe I got my, the CD for it. So, So you must sing as well. I do. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when you, um, my father was a minister, I grew up in church and of course Mm -hmm. being again, part of that musical family, you know, of course you sing. Right. (laughs) Right. Well, well, I mean, I mean, I didn't, you know, not to say that actors don't, don't sing, you know, in musicals, but, but, you know, there are different levels. It's like, if you, if you, um, you don't have to be a great singer to be in the ensemble of a lot of musicals, but, um, in, in community theater, but to do Les Mis, you know, you've definitely got to, you've got to 
have some control of your voice and, and, uh, yeah, Eponine, that's a big role. So <laughs> it was huge. And I, yeah, I loved every minute of it. It was so fun. Um, and we, we did really well with that show. In fact, audiences came to that show and said, Oh, I finally understand the story. Right. Uh, cause you know, sometimes, you know, you hear the music and you've seen the Broadway show, but they, they don't, they don't have the heart in it always that right. I think that a community theater will put into, and they're not as concerned about communicating that message, I think. So, right. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was incredible. Um, incredible experience that, that show. And then um, another show I really enjoyed and had too much fun with probably was Rent. I got to play um, Maureen Johnson, which oh. was Idina Menzel's, you know, she originated that role. And right. that was a lot of fun because I had grown up with that album as well. Right. Um, so. Nice. Um, yeah, just kind of to that extent, I know that, um, yeah, Newton and Hickory, you know, they have community theaters. And I know like a nearby Lenoir, uh, of course, there's also Lenoir Rhine. Um, yeah, I know that my wife has played for I, I'm not sure which one of those theaters, but, um, but I know that they put on productions and, uh, and she said they do a pretty good job. She played Oklahoma at one of them. And back in 2000, I'll say 2015. Cause, cause it was like the second time she'd done Oklahoma. She, first time was with me in, in high point. So, and that was like the year of Oklahoma. It was like so many people did that show that year. So, but, uh, is your impression that it's, it's actually pretty good a theater area? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, you know, there's been, there have been several shows that I thought were on the level of, you know, regional, semi-professional, um, certainly some of the voices and talent that I've um, been able to hear and see in those shows um, in some of these theaters. You know, I know some people that it's, you know, they, that have moved to this area, they've come out of, you know, professional theater and then moved to this area and Mm -hmm. are just kind of settled down and decided to pick it back up again. And so, you know, you get, you get a lot of those folks as well. Um, you know, the artistic director for the green room when I was growing up was John coffee Mm -hmm. and he was a Juilliard graduate, um, pianist Mm -hmm. and had done theater in New York and came back to be the artist in residence. So there, there's a lot of that, um, in this area and a lot of interest, you know, the schools, right. certainly you've got, um, uh, great, uh, choral programs in particular. And I think that certainly helps, um, and a ton of dance schools, um, right. which you need for theater too. Right. Well, I'm sure you get people from all over the world, you know, that just come to this area to, to settle down. I mean, the one thing I figured out every time I go out of the state, I mentioned North Carolina and they're like, Oh, I love Asheville. It just, I mean, it just, it's like a little Mecca <laughs> for them. So, uh, and, and, you know, Hickory not being that far off. It's actually, Hickory is the place where if you're traveling from the east and you're on 40, it's like right when you get to Hickory or maybe just past it, that's when you see all the mountains, you know, on a clear day. That's like when you fir- they first pop up. I was actually thinking earlier when you're talking about, you know, the, the immersion experience, like I said, if you did that for a pit orchestra, that would be quite interesting because you, in a lot of cases, it would be the experience of you've got all these wires everywhere from all the keyboards and the, and the, uh, and their amps and the guitars and the bass and, you know, try not to trip over anything, finding your seat. And then you hear the show, but you don't see the show. <laughs> there have been several shows where I haven't been music director, but I've played keyboard and it's like, uh, sounds good. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely, um, 
something about the pit orchestra that I think would be um, really interesting. And you're right, like something we had to think about too, we're just making sure there were no wires where the audience members were walking. So it'd probably be really treacherous. Um, right. And also pits are so small. So oh yeah. I don't know how you would fit people um, down in those, but it, yeah, it could be interesting. You know, and sometimes though the pit or the orchestra um, is on stage right. um, and that's happening a lot more and more where I see that the, um, orchestra is actually on stage and they're almost a part of the yeah. backdrop or the action. Even. Yeah. Well, you know, we talk about life in the pit and, and I, I've said in episode one that sometimes that's a metaphor, you know, it's like we, the pit is where the orchestras are, uh, where, where the musicians are. It's not necessarily where they go. Um, cause we still talk about the pit even when we're on stage and you know, it's just one of those things that carries, um, one one guest I've never had on here, or one type of guest I've never had, is people who have to do maintenance in the pit. People who have who are responsible for, uh, in the course of a production, for provide getting microphones and you know getting everybody wired up, and that's that's a big ordeal. Um, that you know that I'm sure that you know professional houses are used to, but that can be a challenge. Whereas you know just put put them on the back of the stage and, you know, you know, make, tell, tell them if they need to turn their amps up or down and that can be a little easier. Yeah. You know, wiring and um, miking people up is certainly becoming more and more important as streaming performances is becoming more and more necessary. So that certainly figuring all those things out and having people that can do that and do that well. Um, it's, those people are, very few and far between good audio and tech people that can make a good sound come out. Um, you know, because a lot of times you're in the house and it sounds amazing or you're in the pit and it sounds great, but it's difficult to make what you're putting through the microphones. You have to really know where to put the mics and what the volumes and the levels. And yeah, that's a science. <laughs> right. Let's talk about what have you done with the orchestra during 2020 to keep it going? Yeah, that's been an experience. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing, um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I, um, after I graduated from Elon, I moved to Seoul, South Korea. Mm. And it's probably the coolest job I've ever had. I taught English. Um, I was 23 years old. So it really, that also really shaped me and who I am as a person and being there taught me a lot about how to be adaptable. Mm. And I'm so glad I had that experience about making the best of things and learning how to adapt in a situation. Um, because it's definitely been a necessary skill that I've had to utilize the entire year of 2020. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we've done a lot of different things and our biggest goal was, um, we had a couple audience engagement, musician engagement, because they're not getting together and they're not playing. And so we were, again, creating connections for audience and musicians. Um, and to also um, uh, communicate um, a message of, um, I guess, positivity. You know, we're right. trying to make sure that what most of the content that we're putting out is going to give people something um, to enlighten their day or to make them, you know, feel a little bit better about their situation where they are. So one of the uh, activities that we had a lot of fun with were our watch parties. And mm. the idea was um, 
we put together different topics and um, our music director would pull clips that we would watch together as a group. These were free events, of course, mm -hmm. and um, we, he'd have lots of great history. So for example, one topic, probably my favorite one was um, weird instruments. Mm -hmm of the orchestra right. and I'm sure you get lots of those in the pit. I mean, a lot of them probably come on the keyboard, right? <laughs> but yeah, so that one was really cool. We saw like an ice orchestra, um, in mm. Germany, there's this group of people who take root vegetables and create instruments and do performances with those. And then make a soup out of the leftover parts and give the soup to the audience. I mean, it was just talk about bizarre and strange and things you've never right. heard of or seen. So, um, you know, that was a really fun one. And so a lot of people really enjoyed that. And we had lots of great topics. We had a whole topic about Vienna, which is of course one of the cultural centers of the world and particularly in the, um, 19th century. Right. So we, um, those were a lot of fun and those were great audience engagement, but also musicians. A lot of our musicians enjoyed getting on those and chatting with each other and, you know, um, even contributing to the conversation. You know, if we had a particular piece that they had played before, they were, you know, giving the audience kind of some um, inside scoop on what it's like to play that part. And so that was that was really a lot of fun. And that was a great engage uh, engagement activity for both audience and musicians. We also started a social media campaign called Play On. Mm -hmm. Play On um, started um, in March, almost immediately after this all started happening. And Grace was actually our first uh, musician to play on that campaign. Right. And the idea was, again, to just what I mentioned earlier, the goal about bringing people positivity and some mm -hmm. light um, because, you know, everything felt so dark, you know, you're hearing right. all these horrible things. So the idea was to provide this, um, uh, little bit of music in your life for the, for the day that, you know, was made just for you to listen to. And, uh, we also did some research. We participated in a big survey, a big national survey and did some research and found out that our, our audience really enjoyed cooking at home. Right. And like, so it asked other questions about what they're doing while they're at home during COVID. And one of them was cooking at home. And so that kind of is what bore our um, WPS at home series, music and meals with the maestro. So um, we curated um, the, the maestro curated playlists and recipes. And they, again, we tried to tie them together with specific um, topics. So, and we ended up going with um, basically like a Latin um, playlist with a Latin meal and right. a German playlist with a German meal. And mm. it was really, really fun. Um, so we would put those out each month and we had people send us their pictures of their meals. And so that was really neat. Nice. Um, so yeah, just again, it's been all about just trying to find ways to engage with our audience and, you know, make sure they know we're still here and we're coming back and, um, we're, you know, and, in the process now of, um, trying to do, um, a chamber concert. Um, we're going to try to do two of those this, 
this spring. And so as to whether they're virtual or we have people in the audience is still up in question. We're hoping right. um, that we'll be able to have some people in the audience, but you know, it's, it's just stor- sort of still right now. And of course, you know, in, in months when I listen to this, I'll think, Oh, well, of course you would have done it this way, but you know, right. hindsight. Um, <laughs> right. So, <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. Certainly a learning experience every day. Something is different and new and, um, so yeah, being adaptable is key and, um, just thinking out of the box. These are certainly activities and programs that we never would have done, um, had it not been for something like this. Right. Yeah. That's everybody has to think out of the box, uh, lately. And it's like, and, and it's hard for me to get used to the fact that we're in 2021 now. Uh, but you know, it's like, we're, we're still not out of the woods yet. You know, it's still same same situation but hopefully the end of this year will be a little different than the beginning so yeah we are all hoping for a writer 2021 (laughs) and i think we get it i do i again it's all about staying positive (laughs) right um so this was just a question i don't ask this to everybody but um you know given that uh you're the first executive director i've talked to for an orchestra i just thought um if, if we haven't already mentioned it already, what is something challenging or interesting about your job that you would, that might surprise most people? I would say that the thing that people would find the most challenging mm-hmm. would be the fact that you never get to turn this job off. Right. So, you know, I might go to the bar or to a restaurant or to the grocery store. And if I see someone who's involved with the orchestra or even if it's um, a patron or an audience member, mm-hmm. I always have to turn on my executive director face. <laughs> right. So it's not a, it's, it's really a lifestyle in a way. It's mm-hmm. something, it's a job that you um, accept that it's going to be your job 24 right. seven. It's not a nine to five or eight to five or 10 to six job. Right. Um, it never will be. Um, simply for those reasons, because you are the orchestra, you know, you're one of the people and the figureheads that people associate, um, with that organization. So you just always, 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 um, are working. Right. Right. So I guess the moral is make sure you enjoy the work (laughs) before you decide to do it. Absolutely. And you have to believe in it too. You have to believe in it. You have to feel passionate about it. Um, it's definitely not a job people go into for the money. Same with music. I think all music is that way. Um, right. You don't go into it for the money. You go into it because you're passionate about it and um, because it inspires you and you want to inspire other people. Right. Are there any fond moments that you haven't already shared You know that are special memories with your time with the orchestra? So actually... It is with this orchestra, mm-hmm. but it's from a very, very long time ago. And I thought I would share with you my one and only ever pit experience. Okay, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the fourth grade mm-hmm. um, at Maiden Elementary. And as I mentioned, you know, I grew up playing the recorder with my family. <laughs> and in fact, whenever the music teacher would be out and we were studying recorders. She would say, Oh, let Ingrid just lead the class. <laughs> so I would teach the class that day. Nice. <laughs> it's actually my recorder playing was probably a little better than hers. Okay. 
<laughs> so um, the Western Piedmont Symphony did a big combined production, and I don't remember all the parties who were involved, but it was massive, of Benjamin Britten's Noah's Flood. Mm. And in the orchestra is a small recorder ensemble. So I got to be a part of that. I played the I played the first recorder part. There were like two soprano recorder parts, and then there was a um, there were like two alto recorder parts as well. So I got to be a part of that recorder ensemble, nice. and I loved it. You know, nice. Yeah. <laughs> that was my one experience playing with an orchestra and playing, but also playing. It was pit experience as well because we had actors and actresses and um, huge chorus. And yeah, so that was really, really fun. I mean, this was in probably the, um, this was like in the mid nineties. And so the orchestra actually performed at the Clement center, which no longer actually exists currently. Right. Well, that, that's got to make you one of the youngest pit musicians I've interviewed. <laughs> Yay! <Yeah. laughs> Score! Nice. <laughs> yeah, it was really, um, it definitely was influential for me. Nice. Um, so where can people follow the orchestra? And if you want to share, where can people follow you? Sure. So we are on uh, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube um, are our main. We're also on Twitter. Um, and you can find us Western Piedmont Symphony or WP Symphony. Mm-hmm. And um, on our website, uh, which is wpsymphony.org. And we've got lots of um, great things coming up for this spring as well. In fact, our WPS at Home series has now shifted to um, a music and wellness series. Since we had everybody eating all of last year, now we're giving people reasons to move right. <laughs> and, get, and get healthy. So, um, yeah, I would love to... Um, uh, share that. And then I am on LinkedIn. Um, okay. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram too. So okay. um, I'm on all those. Just me, Ingrid Keller or Ingrid Annalisa Keller. I use my full name sometimes. Well, thank you. This is all very, you know, insightful. And I think it's a, it's a side of just people who play in orchestras. I, I think even a lot, of, a lot of my listeners who play in orchestras, you know, don't really have any idea what goes on in your role. So, you know, thank you for sharing that. Sure. I'm happy to. Thanks for asking. It's nice to share a little bit about what happens on the other side, I suppose. And that concludes episode number 37. Next Friday, February 26th, I'm going to be releasing episode 38. And I have to say, I'm personally really excited about it. And it probably has something to do with the fact that I am a keyboardist. And we are going to be getting into a deep dive into the fascinating but mysterious world of keyboard programming. If you've, you've probably heard us mention that phrase a few times, if you've listened to several episodes, programming the keyboard, what are y'all even talking about might be your typical response, assuming you live somewhere like where I do, where people say y'all. And if you are a keyboardist and you know what I'm, what we're talking about when we say keyboard programming, and you're like, "Oh, I, I can't stand that. I don't want to. I don't want to even hear anybody talk about that." Well, trust me, you really should listen to this episode because I'm talking with somebody who understands your pain and has built a business to help you with that problem of keyboard programming to do that work that for you, so you don't have to do it yourself. But we're going to be really talking about that 
next Friday, February 26th, episode 38 on Life in the Pit. As always, if you want to follow what's coming up next, please be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or Twitter and Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a special thank you to Mark Perillo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. You can leave feedback or find out more about this podcast at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app and please share with your friends. Thank you for listening.